0: Hi and welcome back, this is Police Stories Podcast and this is episode 29, a series of uh, short stories about my uh, 28 year career in the UK Police Force. Um, So I hope you've suitably recovered from your Christmas and New Year Um, and we're going to talk today About uh, basically the stories follow my career, you know, from the sort of start to the finish. So we're we're pretty early days yet. And if you remember last week, we talked about I'd just done my AFO course, my authorised firearms officers course. Um, So I was in a pool that was able to deal with armed jobs, uh, should that be required. Um, But other than that, I was back to my normal sort of day to day stuff. You know, nothing uh, changed for me, really. Except that I could expect, you know, the occasional call, as uh, as we uh, covered in last week's episode. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, but what happened was um, every now and then, as a as an AFO that's based on you know still on the sort of response teams every um few months you'd have to go and do some sort of refresher training you know you don't just do an armed course and then get left alone for a start you have to do a classification shoot every six months which means that you have to achieve a certain standard and that tests various shooting abilities you know from the standing from the kneeling from the prone where you're lying down you know sort of fast draws where you have to fire a certain amount of rounds in a certain time and it tests all your technical and sort of safety abilities as well of um Clearing the weapon, cleaning the weapon, changing magazines, fixing jams. You know, if you have a a cartridge that jams and your weapon doesn't work, there's drills for that as well. On some occasions, you'd switch to another weapon if it was available. If not, you'd have to quickly sort of clear your own stoppage, as they called it. Um, So that would be tested every six months at least, sometimes sooner. Um, and you had to achieve this standard to maintain your AFO's ticket, which makes sense because obviously, well, particularly if you had to pull the trigger in a real life scenario, the very first thing sort of complaints and uh, you know, courts would be looking at is were you an authorised firearms officer, you know, so important. Um, anyway, so I'd gone up to the headquarters and I was doing part of this training and we'd been on the range all morning and uh, kind of mid-morning-ish, we'd gone up for a break. And we were sat there watching the telly and the news and this sort of live news flash came on and it showed a place in America that I'd never sort of heard or been aware of, particularly the Twin Towers in New York. And, of course, unfortunately, we know now it was the 9-11 attack and we all sat there and watched in horror as the two uh, jets, you know, went crashing into the, um, you know, the towers and then subsequently what happened, we couldn't believe it. But we also knew that it would certainly change things um, for us, and in fairness, it actually changed policing in the UK forever um, because of various things. But um, certainly I knew for me in the, in the sort of short term, it, it was going to have some effect. So we finished our training that day and we all went back to our respective stations where we continued doing the um, our day-to-day jobs. But very quickly, within about 24 hours of 9-11, all of us um, that were AFOs in the county, and I think there's about 20 of us or so, um basically had a um a phone call saying you're getting posted to Gatwick Airport, you know. And for me that was over an hour from where I lived. Um so it was quite a way away, but um not unexpected. Now initially we were told that all AFOs and the county would be posted up to the airport. Um and it would be a relatively short term thing. It would probably be two months they reckoned and, and that would be that. But in the police you know, nothing is set in stone and ultimately even now, you know, it's a disciplined organization and you have to do what you're told. You know, sometimes you get posted to places you don't like or you don't want to go to or that are further away than you hoped of where you lived and all that. You know, they're trying to be reasonable, but but ultimately the job can still turn around to you, say, You are going and there's nothing you can do about it, you know. Um, so that's what happened. You know, literally within about a day or two, um, I started in Gatwick, you know. So I was full-time armed. We were uniform armed patrol, sort of wandering around Gatwick. And there was, you know, cars there. It was quite a big team. And uh, you had quite a few capabilities. Gatwick has got a range there as well. So there's a lot of uh, fire and sort of weapons training, as you'd expect. And they've got lots and lots of good tactics for dealing with people, ranging from, you know unruly passengers you know which let's face it makes up a lot of the work to you know a full-on armed sort of terrorist incident with a with a firearms attack you know on the airport so i really enjoyed my time at gatwick to be honest with you i didn't really see it as a bad thing you know i I always liked a bit of a change um i've been doing what i was doing then for probably three or four years so i was happy for the change and it was quite exciting you know And, and the airport i thought was brilliant because it very rarely slept, you know, sometimes if you worked out in a rural location, you know, two, three, four in the morning, there may not be a lot going on and um, it's quite hard work to stay motivated in those early hours if there's literally no cars and nothing about. If you're rural, if you're in a town, then it never stops. But but Gatwick was like a, a town, you know, and, and exactly that, it never stopped, you know. So although the flights stopped quite late, I think it was something like 11 o'clock or midnight at the time they stopped and they didn't start again until 6am, but obviously you constantly had people that had been delayed and moved on and and what have you um and also uh you'd have a lot of people that were getting there very early you know you'd have people turn up at three in the morning for a flight or six or seven o'clock because they like to be there and know that they're you know sort of haven't got to worry about you know their train breaking down or you know they can't park the car or there's an accident and they're late for their flight so they get there very early so there was pretty much always people there um <clears throat> Gatwick consists of two um terminals. You know, you've got the north terminal and the south terminal. The north is the smaller terminal. And there's a small sort of free train that takes about, I don't know, uh a couple of minutes that runs between the two. Um now bear that one in mind because I've got a couple of stories around that that we'll go into in a minute. Um so a lot of the work is is sort of armed patrolling. People are still shocked, or they were then and I think they still are now to be honest with you. they see policemen in the UK overtly armed, you know, with uh, certainly now what are quite sort of physically large guns, you know, um it definitely shocks people. And you'd have all sorts of silly questions, people saying they're not real, are they? You know, and but you don't carry any live rounds, do you? You know, and you kinda of look at them and be like, Of course I do. You know, what what would be the point in carrying like plastic guns around with blanks in, you know, I mean, it's just a bit of a ridiculous question. That one will come up all the time. People like to have their photo taken with you. And generally it was it was quite good sort of natured place to work, you know, in the police you're used to sort of everybody hating you, you know, but it's one place you could work in the police. And actually, um, you know, generally people were quite pleased to see you because they were going on holiday, you know. So, of course, there was the odd exceptions. A lot of the work was dealing with unruly passengers. And as a rule, the armed officers didn't. Go there in the first instance, because the last thing you want to do, and we've discussed it before, is have a roll around while you're armed and carrying, you know, that's a very bad thing to be fighting with someone while you're, you've you got a gun, you know, because potentially that person could go for that gun. So we would definitely go there as backup, you know, but not normally in the first instance. That may have changed now, obviously. Um, So a lot of unruly passengers, a lot of offensive weapons to be dealt with at the search shot channels, because remember that all around the world, you know, it's perfectly legal to carry knives and pepper sprays and, you know, in a lot of countries, firearms. So quite often you get people that had been missed um, at their own airports, boarding aircraft, and they were coming off, and generally they were quite often carrying, you know, knives and and pepper sprays and concealed weapons. Uh, So they were getting picked up in our search channels, and we would have to go down there and deal with them. And in the main, it was that they were just confiscated, you know, and that was that, you know, I think they took a sensible approach that, you know, we weren't looking to prosecute everyone who'd mistakenly brought something in their pocket that, you know, was perfectly legal um, in their own country. So I say I think a, a, a sort of sensible approach was taken to that. But there was some exceptions, you know, it had people bringing outrageous things in um, and we would be called down to them uh, quite often. And in fact, one day we were called down to the search channels to see some it was either pepper spray or cs or mace or whatever you want to call it something like that illegal to carry in the uk it still is classed as an offensive weapon and in some cases a firearm but um so we went down and basically there was it looked like a lipstick effectively it it, you know had the outward appearance of a lipstick and you took the lid off and you had to twist it in a certain way and a little kind of Um, spray a nozzle if you like popped out the top you know and that was how you sprayed it but the the security guards who you know did this all the time were saying it was definitely mace you know something like that and it came off this female passenger you know and we just explained to her look you can't carry that in this country we're going to seize it if you're happy with that and we'll let you get on your way and that was that um that was how it was dealt with then so um I think that was in the north terminal from memory so we'd gone over on the little free train that we were telling you about or uh, earlier what I was telling you about earlier and um, we'd seized it and we popped it in a bag and we were going to take it back to the police station these things just got destroyed and that was that so we were we were sat on the train or I think we were stood at the train and we were at the front of the the free train and so it takes about two minutes to to go across and um, I I had it <laughs> a classic uh, Man, thing you know, can't stop fiddling with with things, and uh I was I had it out of the bag. We were right at the front, so no one could see us, and there was about another twenty or so probably passengers behind us that couldn't see what we were doing. That we just had our backs to them, and I was showing it to my friend. And I said because he hadn't seen it. I said, look, have you seen this? So you just take that off, and then I presume you you push the button, you know, and and the stuff comes out. And I said, I doubt there's anything even in it, you know, for sure. And I said, you know, I I presume it's quite hard to push because obviously you wouldn't want to spray it by mistake. And and while I was saying this to him, I was sort of fiddling about with it. Um, I basically... Touch the top too hard and push the nozzle down, and it squirted a fine mist of pepper spray up into both our faces. Um, It was fairly low-level stuff, but it certainly got us coughing and choking. And then even worse, because those things are sort of got air con in. The air con pushes from front to back, I think, or certainly the fans do, because then people behind us started coughing and sneezing and spluttering. You know, and kind of looking around at each other, thinking that's weird. Oh, I've got some pepper up my nose or something. You know. Of course i tucked it away in the bag i was looking around not saying anything like oh i wonder what that is but we were like red eyes and streaming by now luckily uh, the train doesn't last very long at all so as soon as it finished we stepped off and so did a few people coughing behind us so it was not an ideal, and now it makes you chuckle but uh presumably i could have got in some trouble for peppering about 20 people on the train but but there we go one of those uh experiences uh, now the other thing about this train was Uh, there was a bit of a notorious sort of trick that we used to do with it. Um, Now, the police is, is, you know, very big on wind-ups. Unfortunately, they have been lost over the years because, you know, people take things perhaps a bit too far and also you have people that perhaps easily offended. So, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of pranks that used to go on on new cops have gone, unfortunately, but we did do them and they were good fun. And one of our favourite ones was involved this train. So what would happen was... Um, on the armed unit, you get someone turn up who um was like super fit, really full of themselves. You know, they'd done the AFO course and they came on and it was their first time, you know, armed. And here they were at Gatwick and they were thinking they were the bee's knees, you know, and uh, they tell you how fit they were. Oh, I run marathons and I do this and I can bench press, you know, 200 kilo or whatever. And we're all kind of, all right, yeah, that's, that's really good, you know, sort of not too impressed at all. But, um, after a while it would be decided right i think we need to sort of run the circuit with this guy and teach him a lesson so um you, you had to sort of lay the seed you had to you had to start the wind up so it would start typically that you know we'd be in a car or walking around and um you'd be saying say so, so you're a fit guy aren't you saying so you do a lot of running and that yeah, oh all right yeah okay yeah and they'd be yeah yeah i'm really fit i do this and i do that right yeah and um you know you're fast you know can you can you sort of cover a lot of ground quickly oh yeah definitely yeah and you go, all oh, right. It's just that we've got this this test here thing. You know, it's sort of, it's not official, but it sort of tests, you know, your um, your abilities. You know, and, and just gives you an idea of what what your level of fitness is like. But it's really difficult. Only the fittest people could complete it. So um, oh, we'll probably just leave it then. You know. And you'd be quiet for a bit. And you'd literally, it's like, you know, casting out a fishing hook. You'd just be waiting, give it 30 seconds. Then we're going, no, no, t- tell us about this. What, what's this What's this all about? You know, what's this? Be-? Go Well, I mean, I can let you know if you want, but, you know, say you've got to be really, really fit, very fast. I don't know if you're up to it, you know. No, no, I am. I'm definitely up to it, you know. So, okay, right. Um, So I so, say, well, what happened is it would go over to, so at, the, at night, the North Terminal would close. No flights would go from the North Terminal and nobody was in there at all. And um, And what would happen is, You'd say to them, um, uh, OK, so we go over on the train and the north terminal is circular. Um, so basically the, the free train doors would slide open automatically, you know, and then basically it would wait for, I don't know, let's say two or three minutes before that automatically close and it would go back off to the south terminal. So what we'd say to them to, as a fitness test, what we would do is um, you can't run with your gun because obviously it's quite big and heavy. So you'd have the whole team come over to watch you. So there'd be quite a few of us on the train, and we go over on the train, and then um, you'd say, you know, you've got to be pretty fit to run round it and, and get back. Basically, you have to you you put your gun in in a bag, and you put the bag, you know, just down with your colleagues outside the train, um, and then when the doors open, you sprint off, and you have to sprint around the the sort of circular North Terminal, and then you sprint back and get to the train, but you have to have to get back before the train doors close that's the test you know and it, and i say it took about say three minutes um now of course uh they would be like well you know is, is it doable you'd be like well of course yeah every, everyone else here has done it you know but you have to be fit and fast to do it but if you're not up for it then just leave it you know and of course you, again you're just laying out your bait and like, no no i'm up for it i can do it easy you know oh cool right yeah well it's a you know, it's a bit of a coming of age thing and it's just a way of proving your fitness to people so they know they can rely on you and really, you know, play the part and really sort of buoy them up for it. You know, like, yeah, yeah, I'm up for it. So, OK, right, fine. So that's it on a night turn, uh, you know, North Terminal shut down. There's no one in there at all. Um, South Terminal, the main terminal still open, but very few people in there. Um, But what would happen is... um, So we'd go over first of all, the person would put their gun in a bag and the bag would go to another armed cop who would sort of have it, you know, in a bag at their feet and they'd wait. And then uh, Mr Cocky would come over on the train and the second those doors opened, he would explode off and he'd be sprinting full power now around this, this terminal. Um, what he didn't know was it was absolutely impossible. No human being, Usain Bolt or someone, could not make it in time. So the look of horror on his face as he came round the circuit, closing down on the train to watch the uh, the doors sort of close, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30 yards ahead of him and off it went. You know, he was crestfallen that he hadn't made it, he wasn't fit enough. But even worse, just to enhance the wind-up, we would by now have taken the bag off and somebody would have taken his gun and the bag and, and gone off somewhere else with it and would be waiting around the corner. Um, and they come running back and as the doors close, you'd be like, oh, you didn't make it. I thought you were fit. You know, everyone else can do that. You didn't manage that. Oh, perhaps you're not as fit as you thought. You need to get in the gym maybe, you know. And and then you'd say, oh, but the other thing is, we assumed you'd get back. So we'd put your gun in the bag what, back on the train, you know, and we just assumed you'd make it you know and we said you did put it in the bag didn't you of course we knew he had you know and um he'd be like well, no I gave it to him so you know and he'd point to whoever he'd given it to him that person'd be like well no I, I thought you were gonna make it back so i put it back on the train and everyone'd be like oh my god this has never happened oh no I don't know how are we gonna deal with this oh no your gun is in that train by itself going back across to the south terminal. And you'd be like, oh, no, and you'd make a massive deal. Of course, they'd be absolutely bits now, you know, absolutely terrified of what was going to happen. But what we always had was our inspector would be waiting in the south terminal for the train with an empty gun bag, and he would come back on the train so that now the new AFO, who's absolutely panicking that he's lost his gun, which clearly he hasn't, um, you know, would, to his horror, here comes the free train and the doors are opening, the inspector is on it, holding up a gun bag, going who the hell is this? Whose bag is this? Someone has left their gun unattended on the train. I can't believe it. You know, and he got off on a big rant. And of course, this poor cop standing there with his head bowed, you know, thinking that he's about to be fired. And um, and then eventually we'd let them in on on the, uh, the joke. But it was always a good wind up. <clears throat> uh, we enjoyed that one. Um, and certainly, as I say, if you got a uh, Mr. or Mrs. Cocky that came in, you, you know, telling you how fit and fast they were and how great they were, it just brought them down a peg or two. But it was good fun, good wine up no danger at any point. Unprofessional, possibly, you know. <laughs> um, you know, that's sometimes what happens uh, when there's, you know, idle hands and all that. But um, so another one we had, another good one was if you had somebody that was a um, a car buff, you know, if they loved their car, big time you know it was everything to them they you know invariably it'd be red or black and lowered and have jazzy wheels and they'd be out there polishing it and they'd come in and say oh I've just had it tuned and I've had the stage one whatever chip and now I put out you know 250 horse and it's only weighs this So, you know it'd be going. it would be reserved for the person who'd be going on and on and on about their their car you know you'd be like oh great um, so what you'd do is you'd make sure... Now, this was the days before airways, so this was a local radio system that could only be heard kind of at Gatwick. It was very local. Um, but the great wind-up was you'd make sure the person who loved their car um, was out in a van, and the van would be out deployed around Gatwick, you know, sort of uh, patrolling the surrounding roads. And sometimes it would go, you know, further afield. Um, so you'd be looking at those perimeter roads and the various bits and pieces, but you'd make sure the car lover was on that. And then what you do is you make sure the control room were in on this and there was nothing happening. And they would call up on the radio and um another car that was out or a van that was patrolling in another part of, you know, the perimeter but away from you would call up and ask for a PNC check, which is a check on a registration number on a car. Make out like they're behind it. Say, Yeah, we're behind um Red Ford Sierra, you know, and this shows you how long ago it was. Um, Red Ford Sierra, can can we have a PNC check, please? So control room comes back. Yeah, go ahead. They'd read out the registration number of this person's car, the person who loved their car more than anything. Uh, and, of course, their ears would prick up straight away, and they sat next to you and they'd go, that's my car. What the hell? Why is my car? Why are they reading out my car? They're not behind my car. I parked my car. It's not out, you know. And, of course, they'd be going, well, they wouldn't be making it up, would they? They're obviously behind it. And they'd be going, yeah, OK, thanks very much. Um, we're uh, we're going to stop the car, you know, just to see what, what it's about. So there'd be silence on the radio. And by now, you know, this person's panicking again. Um, of course, immediately they then put up a false commentary and make up some horrendous story of a terrible car chase. So they'd be like, he's making off. He's failing to stop. We're in pursuit. You know, it, it's 70 mile an hour in a 30, you know. And he'd be like, it's 100 mile an hour, you know, sharp bend. Brake lights are on. He's lost it, he's crashed, he's crashed, you know, (laughs) he's crashed into a tree, cars are right off, you know, cars on fire, it's bursting into flames, we've got runners, the people are out and running, you know, this this poor person who's spent thousands of pounds on his car who thinks it's, you know, the best thing ever, he's just hearing the total destruction, including, always ended with a, a nice car fire, you know, um, just to finish off with. So, um, yeah, that that was a great wind-up. And then eventually, of course, you'd, you'd head back to the Nick and, of course, he would see his pride and joy still parked there in the car park. Um, but, uh, yeah, another good wind-up. Uh, though, Another enjoyable one from our point of view. And bearing in mind, I'd been subject to these sorts of wind-ups as well. So um, it wasn't solely on me. Uh, and another one that we had, this is a, a third one. Uh, you might like this one. So we get a new probationer, a nearby... Um, where we worked, there was a theater, and there was a massive fiberglass like red Indian that had his arms in a sort of uh round outstretched motion, and it was actually holding a bin and it was a red Indian with a great big you know sort of um feathered you know headdress on and all that, so from a distance, it looked like a huge bloke, like you know kind of seven feet tall um but it basically had his arms around. Um, what was a bin, you know, it was to encourage kids and that, you know, to throw stuff into the bin. So uh, what would happen is you had to pick the right night, it had to be nights, and ideally it would be like misty or something like that. And the rest of the team would go up and they'd be there, um, but in the shadows, you know, so you couldn't see them. And the radio, the control room would put out a moody call to, oh, we've got reports of uh, drunk male, you know, at so-and-so theatre nearby, Um, and it would come through to like me if I'm with the person who's having the wind-up. So he'd be like, yeah, no problems. We're going to take a look at that. Um, so again, you'd plant the seed on the way. Go, oh, That's interesting. It's unusual because no one's normally there at night. You go, the only person I've ever known go there was, oh, we had this guy once. He was a nightmare. Um, uh, he, he used to attack cops all the time. He was like, you know, mad jock, whatever his name was. You know, he'd make up some nickname for him or something. And it's absolutely huge, you know, but it wouldn't be him. He was in prison for attacking cops, so it wouldn't be him. So, of course, you'd turn up at this job and it's misty and it's quite difficult to see. And as you're walking towards this location, we deliberately park away away so we had to walk up the drive to it. Um, You'd start hearing noises. There'd be some moaning, you know. And uh, so the probationer or, or the new person would stop and be like, what's that noise? And you sort of stop and you'd hear uh, you know, some sort of moaning or noise or whatever and, and some sort of rattling or shaking or banging or whatever. And you'd be like, do you hear that? Yeah, yeah, I can hear it. I wonder what it is. You know, So get a bit closer. And and what you'd have is somebody would be behind the big fiberglass red Indian and would basically be making these noises and shaking it a bit. And you would make sure you stopped just short, that you could see the outline in the mist of this big shape, but nothing else. And you'd suddenly grab hold of the probationer, grab him by the arm, be like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. He must have been released. It's mad, Jock, the policeman killer. You know, he's... He must have been released and he's back here. I can't believe it. And they'd be like, "We're gonna have to be really careful here because he's a nightmare. He's so violent. I'll have to call up some more units. You know, we're not going to approach him. So again, you'd really build it up. You know, now you've got this poor probationer terrified with their torch, shaking, holding their baton. So as you approach this, and there was more shaking of the fiberglass thing and and uh, more moaning noises. You know, you'd really build it up, and eventually be like, "Right, we're going to have to approach." So. As you'd get closer, uh, until the point where he was almost going to be able to see that it wasn't a person and it was a massive fiberglass, you know, Red Indian, um, the whole team would sort of spring out and surprise him or her, you know, um, much to their their shock and horror. So that was always a good wind-up as well. And, and you, you had poor probationers, you know, kind of literally shaking in their boots. Um, so, uh, yeah, that one was good fun too. Um, I mean, we did do some work as well, don't get me wrong. And I know people criticise the police, oh, they've got nothing better to do and all the rest of it. But I still say, and again, the police over the years have come in for a really hard time about, you know, the canteen culture and bullying and all the rest of it. It's a fine line between bullying and, and sort of camaraderie and also wind down. You know, in the police, you will see terrible, terrible things all the time. And, you know, you need a, a release sometimes. And the wind ups you have on team with people, um, for me, you know, and for everyone I work with pretty much, always just help release that steam and you know you might make light of the most terrible situation it was the way of getting through it all cops would be basket cases without this sort of um twisted humor that unfortunately you develop in the police um so there was always good wind-ups and, and i personally think they're important for the team you know um they do help you to sort of bond i'm sure other people perhaps will have different views on it but um this isn't their podcast so there we go um so, yeah, wind-ups were, were prolific, certainly. Um, another call that I had down when I was at Gatwick, um, we had a call to a um, reports of a disturbance on a plane, very usual, drunk male, they're refusing. Now, the carriers, i.e. EasyJet, Ryanair, whoever it was, BA, could... Um, refuse to take someone. If they were that drunk, you know, at the, at the waiting area, then they could say we're not taking them, they're they're a risk and, and we're not going to fly them today. And sometimes they could say we're not going to fly them ever, um, which is obviously a, a big problem going forward. You'd also get the stupid ones that couldn't help themselves but make a joke about bombs or something prior to getting on the plane. Well, I can tell you no one ever found that very funny and that 100% will get you not flying out. The amount of times on Amsterdam flights and things like that we'd be called and basically you know the steward or someone would tell us look we've heard him in the queue joking about bombs and we're not going to fly him so you'd you know pull them to one side they'd be drunk you know and you say you're not flying today and of course they were absolutely appalled and oh I was just joking or rest of it joke all you want you know it's not funny and they won't be flying you today so that's your holiday ruined so uh, don't ever do that if you want to get kicked off the flight. This particular day, we got called down by the inspector to a male who was causing problems on a, I think it was a Spanish flight, like Benidorm or somewhere. And we go down. Now, this guy initially, at first glance, he was older. He was about um, 70-odd, I suppose, something like that. Um, But he was clearly a really fit guy. Just the way he walked and moved, he just looked different to everyone else. He was very light on his feet, and he had a T-shirt on, and uh, like I say, he was 70-odd, but with his arm sort of uh, extended upwards, I could see that he had really, really big biceps still. You know, he was very muscular. Um, so, facially, he looked like, you know, um, a cute old man, but bodily-wise, you know, he looked like, quite frankly, some sort of warrior. Um, and we walked up, and he's, he's opening, he was being a pain. he was drunk, and he was basically being told he couldn't fly. Um, and he was pacing back and forward and he was clenching and unclenching his fists like he basically wanted to attack us, you know, some pretty good warning signs. But he, the um, very first thing he said to us when we walked up was, uh, well, 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 all these cops and no knife to stab you with, which I thought was a, an interesting line, you know. And then, of course, we, we spoke to him, we got his details, and um, he came out of the classic, Don't You Know Who I Am? And we were like, no, mate, we don't, you know, we hear it all the time, I'm kind of not interested. The bottom line is, you can't fly. Um, and you're going to have to leave the airport. Um, and then he was saying, well, look me up, you know, look me up online. You'll see um, when you get back, you know, I used to be someone. And now a lot of people at the time, bearing in mind we're talking, you know, over 20 years ago would be saying I used to work for the Craze or I was a Craze henchman or a bodyguard or whatever. Now, the Krays were some notorious sort of 60s uh, East End London gangsters, you know, very nasty by all accounts who did some some pretty horrendous things. But virtually everyone you stopped in and around London for some years claimed to have you know some sort of link to them, but this guy was different, you know. And um, he he came across different straight away, and uh, you know I really was uncomfortable around him and was and was very cautious, you know. Um, and eventually we basically managed to convince him. You know he had money on him. Uh, we took him down to the um, the taxi rank. Um, And we had to basically get him away from the airport because he wasn't flying. But the whole time he was on edge and uh, yeah, we had to really sort of say be very careful around this guy. He had money on him. We put him in a taxi and basically sent him on his way. But when we got back to Nick, we did some searching. Now, sure enough, this was one of the few occasions he was exactly what he said when I did some checking. It turns out he was like a very well-known bare knuckle fighter and um, had had some big fights in his life. You know, he was all over the internet. He'd been to prison um, lots, you know, um, and had killed a person in prison, I think, with his bare hands. You know, really, really violent individual. Now, obviously, he was a lot older, but I was thinking, wow, you know, if he was like that, you know, at this stage, um, he must have been an absolute beast, you know, when he was kind of, you know, 30, 40, 50, um, because he was still clearly quite a handful, and I'm, I'm convinced that had he really kicked off and we'd have had to arrest him, you know, I think we'd have all got hurt in the process. Um, but there we go. Um, some lucky escapes uh, sometimes. And um, and that's, that's that. So, yeah, Gatwick, brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Um, ended up doing a year there. You know, was told two months. It ended up being a year. But I thoroughly enjoyed the year. And um, really, really good times. I say a very variable uh, place to work. Quite interesting, quite different from a policing point of view um but so uh, yeah enjoyed it so there we go episode 29 hopefully interesting no sort of specific stories as such a few wind-ups in there like i say the police used to thrive on them perhaps not quite so much now um and next week we'll deal with uh some more stuff hope you're enjoying it still and we're all over the internet you know police stories podcasts on twitter or x and youtube and tiktok and all that Uh, Just advertising, you know, the next uh, episode when it comes out. Generally about 8 8 o'clock, 8am on a Friday morning. So I'll speak to you again soon. Have a good week. Take it easy. Cheers, bye.